Hello, legends. Today, I catch up with Cub member Rusty Vabhav, CEO of Get Rare Properties, a leading buyer's agency that specializes in building investment property portfolios for clients across Australia. Rusty arrived in Australia from Merut, a small town near Delhi in 2006 with less than nothing. He actually came with debt, <laughs> but he did have many degrees and he has since built a big property portfolio and now runs Get Rare Properties to help others do the same thing. In this convo, Rusty shares the secrets that separate the top 1% of investors from the rest, the importance of investing in yourself and how sometimes you have to take one step backwards to take two forwards. Hope you enjoy the show. I love the name of your business, Get Rare Properties. It just says what you do. Exactly right. So we are looking for unique properties, but at the same time, it has a, I guess, meaning attached to it. And that's our mission of making or getting people rich and retire early. <laughs> rich and retire early. Hence the, name, hence the name Get Rare. That's brilliant. Did you, tell me the truth. Did you come up with that before the name or after the name? Oh, it took only, say, 11 weeks to come with the name and the logo. <laughs> that's awesome. And... Um, I wanted to have you on today because you are an expert in the property market and in building property portfolios is something uh, obviously that a, a, a lot of business people do or are interested in. It's also a very hot topic right now because uh, the property market's doing a lot of strange things um, and, you, you know, you're hearing a lot of conflicting uh, things. Sometimes you hear, oh, the pro property market's doing well and then you speak to other people saying, no, it's doing horrible and, you, you know, <laughs> so no one really knows what's going on. So I really want to dive into that today and obviously hear your journey of Sure. Coming to Australia and and, and uh, building your property property portfolio and, and building your your incredible company now, but um, uh, why don't we start with um, with um, uh, your story, where you're from, and 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 how you started this journey in property? First of all, thank you so much, Daniel, for ha having me um, and uh, giving me an opportunity to share my journey. So I'm an um, Indo-Australian first generation uh, coming to this country 2000, in 2006. Indo-Australian, you said? Uh, so, so I'm Indian. So yep. Indian-Australian. Like <laughs> Indo-Australian. I've never heard it. It's yeah, good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I came in this country in 2006 with the aspiration of having a you know, rich life as in terms of, not really in terms of wealth, in terms of having the experience, having that time with the family, probably spending time on the beach. Uh, so that was the aspiration I came to this country. Because coming from IT background, like I had a choice to go probably anywhere in any part of the world. Uh, so I was in Singapore where I did my master's in computer science. And I had a choice to A, stay there, go back home or go to US or Europe. Uh, but I deliberately choose to come to this country, which is a beautiful country. And I'm, I was in love then. I'm still in love with the country. And what, I just had a curiosity. What made you choose Australia over all of the others? I, I guess it's the the human element. Uh, like people are nice, like they're gentle in terms of, you know, if you go to US, Singapore, you know, like they are pretty much the same. You know, it's, uh, I guess, like um, it's a mechanical life, if I can say it this way. But, but how did you know that before oh, look, coming? We, well, look, I'm actually a very research-oriented person. So what I did was basically look at them, all my options uh, was one thing. But then the second part was what are the factors that I'm looking at in my, I guess, which country I should be going for. Right, so depending on like what are the factors, there were many. So one was like ease of getting in, uh, B the the climate, um, and uh, just just the ease of achieving my long term goals, and then giving a factor to each or other weighting to those factors, 
Um, because then I was looking at all the countries out there, uh, the ease of getting in and the cost of living and, you know, all sort of things, uh, distance from India as well as a, as a factor, uh, because we still travel to India a fair bit. Um, so all those factors, the weights to it, and then looking at the assessment of each and every country coming with a weighted score that it come out to be, and then Australia was a clear, clear. Winner. How funny. And so you're, you, you got a master's in computer science. I read that you were a data Data scientists as yeah, well? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so as a com master in computer science was more into information systems. So I had uh, 10 years of career in data systems. So I was working with the banking sector, looking at the systems, integration sort of things. Uh, but before that, if I can take a step back, I was actually an architect, so I was a property architect. So I studied architecture for five years, uh, basically with the, I had the passion of looking at the properties on a very systematic, very, very I guess, critical point of view. And um, I thought of, you know, Property is one of the best things with the form and function and um, science and art together. And uh, and that made me pick architecture as my career. I got into it, studied for five years. That was a different story that I had to change gears. I lost my dad early on. So it was for me as a family, male in the family, I guess, uh, I had to really think about surviving and becoming the breadwinner for the family. So that made me choose to go into IT programming, which I learned on my own. And uh, it was over the period of time I realized that no, education is far more important. So I better go and pick the right education now in computing. And and your father passed when you were in high school? Or? I just passed my high school. So I was uh, 18 years old then when I was trying to look look at my options out and, there. And, and we, are you the only son or the eldest son? Yeah, I'm the only son. Uh, I had uh, two elder sisters then. And the reason I'm saying I had because I lost one uh, to cancer. So, yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. My, yeah, my, right. my, my mother just went through it, actually. She just finished chemo uh, I'm so sorry uh, to hear two that. weeks ago. So I, I can relate. But, but, and so you, you had a, you had a um, I guess, a sense that I, I, need, to, I need to step up and, and provide for my family at a, at a very early age. And, and you said you got into IT for that reason. Is that because you felt that that was where most opportunity was? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, opportunity was one part. Then the second part was the, I guess, rumination around it. Um, because as an architect, as a young architect, as an apprentice, probably I would be taking a few years to establish myself to start making a decent living. Compared to programming was like, okay, if I was good, and because I picked it on my own, the fundamentals were pretty strong to start with. Um, I was actually learned in an IT job as a programmer. Education came actually after, after or during the course of, uh, being in a job. So it started with a pay, pay in my hands to start with, I would say. And so how, how old were you when you came to Australia? So that makes me 32 years old. And it, you, I assume you spoke English before you came to Australia. Yeah. And English is quite prevalent in India, isn't yes. it? Yeah. And, um, and how long did it take you to get into the property world? So you came with nothing, yeah. is that correct? Oh, I actually came with some debts. With debts, yeah. <laughs> came with negative. <laughs> so you came with nothing. Yep. And and what was going through your head? Yeah, look, uh, I'm always a, like coming from a family which is always forward looking, thinking about where you can end up is far more important than what you have achieved, what you have today. And then coming from that big mindset that, okay, you know, it's choices in our hand, like, uh, your palmistry is in your palm, basically, you know, you, you can control it. And um, that made me really think about, okay, what are the green venues, venues out there, how I can achieve it. So it's always about, you know, starting with 
a clean slate, like thinking about challenging the status quo. Like even when I landed up here, it didn't really took me too much time to think about what career I would like to build over here. So within a year or so, I was preparing myself for a full-time MBA. Um, because I really want to learn, uh, you know, when I got into IT, of course, I was earning money and um, I was investing, putting in stock market, mutual funds, even properties back in India. But then that was more of my hobby, uh, my passion to make it work. And sometimes I win, sometimes I lose as, as a, you know, uh, as a young investor trying to make it work. So I was reading a lot. And then I realized that because of my passion for numbers, my passion to make it work, made me really go into that journey of reading a lot about investing, like how investors are really making a while or making their presence count. And when I started doing this, I realized that why don't I make this as my career? So money management was all I really want to do. So 2006, May, I came here with nothing. So first year went and actually, you know, picking things uh, up in terms of, I guess, the home to rent in and all the, you know, car and whatnot. The so, essentials. Yeah. So within a year, like it was more about, okay, I'm settled now. Uh, I can live here. And then I started preparing for a full-time MBA. So I quit my job with the intent of going in a full-time MBA, went to AGSM here, wanted to go to US to study. Uh, but Rupali, my wife, uh, she got pregnant with our first child and we're like, okay, geez, uh, not a good timing. <laughs> and uh, that made me think that, okay, no more US MBA, but maybe go to the best over here. So AGSM was as an um, UNSW MBA program that I picked with the intention to go to US later on, on exchange program. So that's what I did. I took some loans um, to get in the full-time MBA because there was no salary coming in afterwards. Wife being on maternity leave is like, okay, what am I doing here? But because if you are driven with your purpose, if you know what you're doing, if you always have a sight on your long-term goals, anything is, is more of a process. And how do you think you maintained? Because I think that's quite special. You're, you know, you, you've come to Australia with minus, not, not even with nothing, with minus. You've, you've, you, I, I assume you're, you're also looking after the financial well-being of some of your family back home. You've, you came with your wife as yep, well, is that correct? That's right, yep. and, and now your wife's pregnant. You've been here a year set up. You still don't have a full-time job. How did you, how did you not freak out? Who said I didn't freak out? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was going to ask, because that would be the normal thing to do. I did, I did. I'm normal human, right? So, now it's more about having clarity, you know, like everything will always, before taking off, it will actually go down. As an example, if I talk about a development project, like if I, if I buy a, you know, old property with the intent of knocking it down and then building another four-story building, the first thing that will happen is actually value destruction. Like I'm taking that building off. I'm actually reducing the value first and then putting my more money more as an into the project before I make it really worthwhile. And the whole thing is about having clarity of the long term makes you think that this is a part of the process. Like destruction is part of it. Like investing, me investing in my future for my education, for my passion, wasn't really chasing money. It was more about my satisfaction. Because eventually, like I look back, I thoroughly had a great career in IT. But that was an accidental career for me in the sense that I had to go to IT for the sake of supporting my family. That point of time, I didn't really have a choice until I actually earned that choice that, okay, this is my best country to live in. I made a choice. Deliberately, I made it here. Then the intention was to pick the best career out of it. And that's what really made me think that this is my investment of time, efforts, 
seeing it through, looking at my Excel sheet of all the expenses, not to freak out too much. Um, and um, look, that was crazy time and um, meditation and everything I, held me through. <laughs> and I just think that you obviously have a tremendous belief in yourself as well in addition to all that. But understanding that, you know, the old saying, you, you, sometimes you take one step backwards to take two steps forwards. Okay. And it, it's fine to do that. And as long as you understand that the backward steps is part of the forwards, it's yes. part of moving forwards. It's really a step forwards in many cases. That's a bit of the secret, I guess. Exactly right. And look, sometimes we have to run through the what-if scenarios and what could go wrong. Um, you know, we always say, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Uh, but let's not forget that when I was trying to get into MBA, you know, when trying to get into the finance industry, something happened called GFC. So, you know, it pushed my planning through the roof and then the sun's like, what's really going on? Like the industry is crashing and I'm trying to make my you know, foot in the door. So it was not really easy. And I was still committed to go to US. I still made it to US, went to Booth Business School, one of the best when it comes to education in finance. Which business school? Booth Business Booth, School, yeah. Yeah, which is in Chicago. And, and, and how did you end up in property? Yeah, so that's, that's more of a side hustle that I was doing, um, which actually happened when, so long story short, like I have worked very hard. I actually did CFA, which is a chartered financial analyst, uh, which is one of the top designated, uh, top designation when it comes to money management side of things. Um, so I did that to lend myself in a job in, in the money management industry. So I started working with Westpac as an equities analyst. And once I said, okay, I made it to the industry now, you know, uh, it was probably one of the best uh, day when I actually got an offer in my hand. A and job was, offer? Yeah, because it was more of a work and belief, as you mentioned, for, I had to wait for four years to get into it. Um, but was resilient. I could have gone to IT industry at any point of time, but because I knew that this is what I've, you know, um, started, I really want to go through all the way. Thanks to my family to support me through, to not just believe in me, but rather made me believe in myself more. Encourage you. Yeah. So how did I get into properties was in this four years when I was trying to do, trying to understand like how money works, uh, I was actually started studying how property market works in this country. So I'm still without a job, trying to figure it out, how it happens. And the key which I learned was to have a vision and put it on the paper. I didn't really have a job. I promised myself that in 10 years' time, I would like to retire on the beach. Somebody asked me, what am I earning? Nothing. <laughs> so it started with the vision and it was like, okay, this is my end goal. How do I get there? So the key thing was sincerity, integrity, and hard work. But more importantly, it's more of a psychological thing having that true belief that it's possible. Anyone can put it on paper, that is my vision, but can you really believe in it? That can you bet everything on it? So that's where I started. I, for me, when it came to property investing, for me, it was more about, can I learn uh, about property investing? Because I looked around with my focus on education, you know, architecture, IT, and then my MBA in finance. The key thing was, okay, understand the end goal, um, but then how do you make it really practical? So in, the intent was, let's learn how property investors are investing in properties. Let's see what is the success factors for them uh, to make it successfully. So statistically, if you look at it, 90% of property investors in this country, a country passionate or obsessed with property investing, 90% have only one or two investment properties. And I'm talking about 90% of property investors. So property investors are investing 90%, as in 72% have only one investment property, and 18% have two investment properties. 
and i was talking to myself like okay if they are investing in properties and they believe in it why they don't do third and fourth and fifth um so i started studying like what is this average property investors doing compared to less than 1% successful property investors who are building a portfolio of five or more properties so these are the statistics from ato website so so for me when i looked at it like less than 1% means less than 10 people among 1000 property investors who are able to do it successfully for me it was more around okay let's understand who is this one person what are they doing how they go about investing and can i just emulate them i don't really have to you know build up anything or research it and come up with a model let's just understand how successful property investors are doing and with that intent of learning first made me made me go to workshops read books paid and paid signed up with so many programs almost signed up with almost every newsletter out there um 16 months i spent to just learn how it should be done before i took loans to get into my first investment property so you basically analyze the difference between uh uh all the property investors and uh the one, sorry you analyze the difference between property investors that had one to two properties and the ones that had five or more that's right and you then figured out what the ones that have five or more properties are doing and That's how right. they get in there yeah so it's more about just following their road map of success don't so there's a saying a chinese proverb that if you want to go ahead trying to figure out your way just ask people who are coming back from that route <laughs> i'll tell you what those chinese they know some smart things <laughs> <laughs> i truly believe in it like you don't have to reinvent the wheel yeah and and so what did you discover so uh in summary there are quite a few things but in summary there are two things one is strategy they have to have a plan take it as a business property investing is not just a hobby or a way of parking your money if you really meaning to make it work for you let's define what does it mean to you so take it as a business every decision you should be making um make it as your business decision based on cost and benefits pros and cons let's weigh them up have those factors have those weights similar to what i was talking about and then weigh what you want to do so take it as a business plan was one part that's what less than one person was doing and second thing not taking shortcuts when it comes to due diligence as in research because lots of you know average property investors like uh, 90% they were just going by their comfort comfort of knowing the place buying in the neighborhood because that's what they felt that they know the area or maybe if they are smart then they're just trying to focus on or follow some smart friends of theirs without really bringing their personality in there so avoiding hurt behavior not just you know taking shortcuts in the due diligence or not even realizing the power of research because lots of people are buying for the long term they think this property is great it has not really failed them in general that's a age that property will not fail but i can show you so many examples where people have lost money over long term as well so avoiding those blunders understanding the risk capital as well lots of people typical you know barbecue session uh, social chat we really talk about cash flow versus capital growth you know negative gearing or positive gearing that's awesome you know we are talking about components of returns how about the risk appetite we don't really talk about how much risk we are taking what is the opportunity cost so thinking more as a financial planning around it made me actually appreciate it early on even before me putting my step in the property investing in this country and how did you discover 
by analyzing data that the top 1% of property investors were using strategy and not taking shortcuts when it came to their um, um, assessment of the property. How, how did you get that? those two things from the data? Yes, yeah, so it's not really so much of a data. Data was more showing that what their splits are, but then it's more about networking, getting to know who's doing it successfully, reading their books, you know, what they're saying, what's their, I guess, secret sauce out there that they're putting out there uh, without a grain of salt because everyone, you know, sometimes they're writing a book, there's a there's a hidden agenda sometimes. So you have to really take it with a salt of, you know, uh, with yeah, a pinch of salt. So, but at the same time, when you network with them, you sit with them, you understand what they're doing. It's like investing in stock market. You do not really have to put your own money to start learning. You can start with your paper trades. So doing that so much around those levels, um, reading books, talking to them, going to the networking events, learning from the gurus. Again, I don't have to reinvent, just learn what they're doing. It's just kind of, I mean, I do it a lot at CAB. I speak to a lot of smart people and from different industries, different businesses, but you often find that some of the most successful people have things in common. They do, they say the similar thing or they do something the same. Yes. So really what you're saying is you were analyzing the best people, meeting them, befriending them, reading their books, read the seminars, and you were finding the common factors that they were all saying were were part of their success. And then you took those common factors and applied it yourself. Yeah. If I have to pick one factor which came the most common, most prominent, without fail, is having a mentor or a coach. You know, there, there are two ways of doing things. One, you figure it out on your own. You put all the, I guess, time, commitment, sincerity, everything on the table to make it work. Or just spend time to get your A team working for you. And that means just picking the right candidate. So for example, if, similar example, if I, you know, get sick, something important, I have to go to a specialist. I'm not trying to go on Google, for example, to learn what happened to my lower back, what's happening with the slip disc. What I'll be doing is like researching on the specialist and then relying on that specialist to give me advice because he has, or she has done, you know, the whole, she made the whole career out of understanding spinal cord and how things work and what, and then the experience, because sometimes it's not really just about the data and the facts. It's also about the experience and the art of reading between the lines and having the, you know, uh, pulling the trigger sometimes. So the common thing which I've found, always have a coach, always have people around you who are, you know, looking after your welfare, who can come and tap on your shoulder saying, buddy, what's going on kind of a thing. So surround yourself with the right people. And did you end up finding a property mentor? All the time, all the time from the day one, because I knew if we have to really understand the stakes, stakes of 90% average investor versus 1% successful investor, average investors, probably buying one or two properties, as I said, how many, how much money they are making on average, maybe 10, 15, 20 grand per property per year. So that's one aspect. But if I talk about a scenario whereby people are making, you know, building a portfolio of five plus properties, you're talking about real wealth here. The numbers can go, you know, in a couple of million dollars and getting a passive income in hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, if I look at the comparison, and if I'm really trying to understand the foundation, and foundation is all about, you know, getting it right from the day one. And to me, all of a sudden, like I don't mind spending five, six grand more to get to that ex uh, access to that person who's professionally doing the services. So, you know, so to me, rather 
I was very happy to spend five, six grand. And that's what I was saying, like in 16 months when I was, what I did was actually invest in myself, not just going for the network, networking event, but signing up with their courses, paid, unpaid, or otherwise, um, just to see what people are doing. And I could really see the difference when a, a specialist is doing and when an average person is doing. And you highlight, I mean, you're someone that loves data and you highlight data a lot. And in fact, one of the, one of the two most important things, strategy and, and analyzing uh, the, the risk and the, the data. What are things that you think people should be analyzing when they're looking at a property? Okay, so there are quite a few things, but before we get into it, I think the first part is understanding their why. Why they want to invest in property? Because that's a big difference between, you know, average and a specialist uh, as a successful investor, is starting with their why. Like they really need to know the factors first, what they should be looking in the property. If I just give prop two properties, property A and property B, they might be very good properties, both of them. But unless we define the factors or define the lens that we should be looking at, there's no right or wrong answer. So the way we look at it, like let's define our KPIs of what we should be looking at in the property. And that will be only understood when we understand what piece of puzzle it is, you know, filling in the whole strategy of building wealth. And and when it comes to why, you mean things like, well, I want a property portfolio like this different. So I might want a property portfolio that is good for long-term investment, or I might want a property portfolio that's good for uh, uh, shorter term renovate and, and sell. Uh, or I might be looking for a property portfolio that is positively geared and delivers me cash flow every month or that, or that will do so in a, in a short amount of time. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? It's pr probably broader than or that. Or more meaningful. Uh, than that. <laughs> uh, more, more broader as well. Meaningful as well as broader. And what I mean is that like people tend to talk about properties and they are keen to buy a property. But essentially, deep down, it's not the property. It's about wealth. It's about, you know, that passive income. And that's, that is being defined by the need of having a source of passive income, the financial security. It comes down to their alternate of, you know, their active investing or active uh, trading their time for money. So when people are working for the nine to five or even when business owners, like there are two aspects to it. For, for nine to five goer, that they are very much dependent on their salary. And there's a limitation that how much they can earn because they are effectively, essentially trading their time for money. Take three months off, they're probably they're not getting paid. So they have a dependency, dependency on their time, on their job. So lots of people want to invest for that aspect that how can I be not dependent on my active job or active time trading? So now it's more about, okay, how can I generate passive income? Because one property with that definition of yours, like a property giving you $5 or $50 or $500 or even $500,000, still positive, it's still giving you money. But let's define what is your desired number. What's your goalpost so that we can work towards it. So then all of a sudden we'll realize that it's not about our property. Because it doesn't really matter. What matters is like, can we have that portfolio that gets us closer to what we really want? But then I will also say this, Daniel, anyone can aspire to do anything. But it really comes down to why. Why they want to not rely on their jobs. What is it that they're looking for? And it really comes down to their passions, to their desires, desires like traveling with the world, spending time with their loved ones, doing some charity, giving back. To me, there are more deeper reasons or deeper whys that people get going. For business owners, my, my, you know, they are very much passionate. That's why they're running businesses. But then they're dependent on their core business. So 
there's not really much of a diversification. And they're working more than nine to five. They're working seven to seven. <laughs> no, totally. Or maybe more than that. I'm a business owner myself. So uh, no, it's, it's the passion that drives. But then all the eggs are in one basket. If something happens regulatory-wise or business-wise, you know, it's the table is standing on one leg as a business owner. If something happens on that leg, things might shake a fair bit. So property investing to me as a, for a business owner is more like growing the, on the leg of the table eventually as a separate source of income. Yeah, I love that analogy. It's a really cool way to put it. Thank you. And so you've defined your why and your strategy. Then how do you analyze that or where do you get it? Yeah. So, so on that strategy outcome, what we're looking for is that what sort of passive income you want to generate over the period of time, right? So it's more about let's set up our end goal. And end goal is something significant. Like, you know, people are talking about having meaningful passive income of 100000 120, even more, $200,000 per year. Coming that as a passive income is the actual goal. This is their real why they are investing in doing something, whether it's property or elsewhere. So then it really comes down to, okay, how do we go about defining that? As an example, very quick example, if I say somebody has a desire to have a passive income of $100,000 per year. Now, what it means is having a portfolio of roughly $2.5 million with an assumption that 4% net yield we are collecting. And if you have a $2.5 million portfolio, 4% will give us $100,000 year in, year out. So that becomes our kind of our desired goal that we want to achieve with the clarity that this $2.5 million portfolio is fully paid off. Because that means any rent I'm collecting as a net rent I'm collecting is for me to consume rather than just paying the mortgage. So $2.5 million portfolio uh, fully paid off has become, becomes my, I guess. Is that what gives you your 100K? Yeah. If it's fully paid off. That's right. Right. So now the question is, how do I go about building wealth of in the order of $2.5 million? So typical family saves about 30 to 50K per year. And if you go by that rate, even if you save the 50K as an example per year that they're saving, it will take them only 50 years of saving. Right. So that means it's not really a solution. Uh, if you just rely on a active savings or active role and then I'm, I earn more and spend less and save more, it will take me 50 years to get to that level to, to be ready to retire. So that means something can be done. And property investing for that reason, with the leverage involved, with the inefficiency in the market, uh, the idea is that how about I build a portfolio with my borrowed money, so it's not my money, as much I can leverage, I should leverage, and then setting it up for the growth as an example, what I'll very quickly share is that let's buy a $2.5 million portfolio today. Let's leverage it to the maximum in the sense, let's assume we got banks to help us you know, that with that money. They gave it, They give us 80% of the- Yeah, 80% or 90%. The, the idea is that, okay, that's where that strategy or the risk appetite will come into play. But all I'm saying is that let's start with the desire that $2.5 million we put in today. With, and I mean, of course, there will be limitation assumptions in the made in the journey. Uh, at least on the planning side, we are saying, okay, let's build a portfolio of 2.5 with leverage money, as in no single dollar from your pocket, and let it and let it double in value now. So when you are sitting on that portfolio, it's a diversified portfolio, maybe three or four properties, or maybe five. So risk is lower. We are sitting on a 2.5 million dollar portfolio. Let it double in whatever time it takes. Eight, 10, 12, 15 years. We do not know what happens in the future. So let it double. All you have to do is just manage that portfolio that cash flow is maintained, the risk is risk is under the radar. Um, 
And then when it doubles in value, whenever it does, we have $5 million portfolio now, but still $2.5 million loan. So effectively, I build equity of 2.5. And which is exactly what we are looking for, as in the wealth of $2.5 million in, in, in order. So effectively, what I'm saying is that let's build the portfolio very quickly. Let it double in value. Eventually, you sell half of the portfolio to pay off all the debts. In it your would portfolio. have to more than double in value, though, because if, you, if you're putting in 20%, yeah, doubling so, in value so, is not going to give you a 2.5. So no. you might have to wait. Yeah, so still I, 20 years would be less than, yeah, than totally. 50. <laughs> totally. But, but the good thing about property investing, Daniel, is that we can go to the bank to tap on our equity as well. So in my example, I started with borrowed money when, with my first investment. So it was actually 100% borrowed. Um, and when it grew in value, I went to the bank again, get that money out, and invested it again in the other property. So you are right. It comes to 10%, 20% of the deposit for, for you that you require to buy your next property. But the key is to rely on the growth of the first one, that I can go to the bank for the first one, get the equity from the first one itself, that will serve as a deposit for not just the deposit, but also the expenses around the purchase of the second one. So idea is that we keep on building with a very keen eye on the risk side of things. Because more leverage we use, we are actually, you know, we are- Exposing ourselves exposing to situations ourselves. like now. That's right. So it's more about understanding this is, this is this, you know, more of, an, more of a plan, then it's more about adjusting to your personalization. So what we are doing as a business now, because this is what I've done uh, for myself, what is good for you or good for me might not be good for someone else because it's more about personality. Because risk buffer, you know, savings plan desires where they really want to end up and where they are, what their starting point is, is entirely different for each and every one. The fact that people ask me, which is a very common question, Daniel, and you should not be surprised by when I say, everyone asks me, okay, where are you buying today? This is a very common question as a buyer's agent. And I refuse to answer because the, I'm doing a disservice because the person might just go and start looking around without really bringing the long-term thinking, without really thinking the personalization side of things. At my position where I am having that kind of portfolio, I do not mind taking a very risky bet on the market compared to someone who's, who's trying for the first time. So it might be the same property, ideal property that we are buying for our client might not be suitable at all for the other person. So personalization is super important, especially when we are talking about risk exposure around it. And how do you handle, so how do you handle situations in the property market like the current? Yep. With the interest rates going up and, and, and uh, I know a lot of people are selling. Um, how, how are you looking at this as an opportunity with property? Okay. So there the are two parts to this question, uh, if I understand. So one is how do we go about you know, looking at the market uh, when this is happening? So with our group of families that we are working with, it's not really a surprise that this could happen because that was already built in in our modeling. We always talk about risk buffers, having always you know spare cash around it, having that kind of a, I guess, some uh, sort of kitty that if something goes wrong or goes against you, you still have something to bank on. Sometimes the problem is that people over leverage. If they go by the sentiment, two years ago, everyone was trying to buy. They probably have bitten than what they can chew. And those are that particular segment. I feel sorry for them. But that is the segment which is getting in trouble. So if you start afresh and thinking about, okay, we are buying for the long term. The, the key thing to understand is property investing is for the long term. 
and cyclical. It will never go as a straight line. It will have its own ups and downs. So as a, as a savvy property investor, the whole idea is taking the base case as well as the worst case scenario in our modeling that will tell us that, okay, this is how much resources I can play with. This is my safety buffer and build a diversified portfolio. So instead of buying one or two properties as a high dollar figure value, because that's where sometimes ego comes in, how can I buy, how can I not buy a couple of million dollar property compared to buying four properties of 500K each as an example. So having that diversity built in. And to us, the way we look at it, it's all about your portfolio rather than individual properties. So buying it in different markets, that one market, and this is the best part of Australian property market is it's a heterogeneous market. And what it means is there are markets within the markets. One market goes up. I mean, you really want to put all the eggs in the same basket when everything is going up. You feel very good, very excited. But there might be an opportunity or there might be a chance that everything is going down as well. So as a savvy investor, you really want to buy in a multiple markets that actually helps you with you know, minimizing your overall risk exposure. Because yes, your one property might be going down, but then there might be other counter side property that is going up giving you a very balanced approach of your portfolio. So that's one part. Then the second part uh, of your question was more around how do I read this market? And believe it or not, we are super excited as a, as a buyer's agent. And what it means, there are more opportunities because people are driven by the sentiment. They're thinking to your point that, you know, I can't hold it anymore, let's sell it off. There are more properties in the market, there are less buyers in the market. In our definition, this is a buyer's market. The buyers or the families that we're working with, we actually educate them to understand this part, that you are, we are buying for the long run. Lots of people ask me that, okay, what's really happening with the interest rates? We know it's a long-term play. We have to really look at the long-term performance of the property market. You also have to take into consideration the long-term cost of borrowing money. And if your long-term returns are bigger than your long-term cost, as an example, if, we are, if I have to quote in numbers, 10.7% is the total return up residential property market gives on a yearly basis as an average, an average over the last 100 years. 10.7% increase in total value in property value? No, it's not just value, it's a total return, it, okay. which means capital growth, increase in value, plus the rent you collect, oh, okay. minus all the expenses related to holding the property. So 10.7 is the average number over the last 100 years. Cost of borrowing is around 5, 5.5%. Even if I say 6%, uh, let's say, um, so what I'm doing is like I'm borrowing at 6%, I'm investing in uh, an asset class which gives me 10.7. So 4.7% is my profit to keep for just taking decision. If I'm going for the long run, that 4.7 is by the way, an average number. So that's your strategic thinking. But if you're doing the right research, right due diligence, maybe your average is about 6% of that number. Now your asset from nowhere, is growing at 6% compounded. And the moment you have 12, 13%, you go and do this again. And you, so there's a snowball effect without your money. So the whole concept of investing in property is about leverage using a concept called OPM, which stands for other people's money. So you don't have to have your money. You can borrow money, invest, watch the eggs, let them hash. That's where it matters. And, and, and do you, what would happen in situation, do, do you ever have to educate your, your clients? Let's say I've, I've, I mean, I know a lot of buyers agents and I've always said to, to all of them, uh, I, you've got a great job because 
how, whenever has someone been upset that they've purchased the property? Because over the past, however, since this probably the start of recording values of properties in Australia, it's it's only gone up. So it's, you can only do good by by your people. But but this type of situation now with the sharp rise in interest rates, I mean, it, something similar, I guess, also happened in 2006 or uh, 2006, 2008 with the financial crisis. Um, and, but with this type of sharp, like, shock to the system where everyone's like, oh, shit, what's going on? Do, do, do you find that you do need to educate your clients uh, with, hey, guys, look, you know, this is what this means, this is what we can do? Yeah. Or do people panic to you? Look. Because I'd imagine there has to be a lot of panic. I'll tell you how I know um, uh, of, of our staff team that I'm aware of, including Laura here, at five or six of them, whatever it was, are literally being forced to move because their landlords have to sell because they can't afford their, yep. their their mortgage repayments. That's a lot of staff members at one point in time having yes. to move. So there's obviously a lot of shock in the market. Yep. Um, do you find yourself having to kind of consult and educate your clients, I guess they would look to you as a mentor in the sense. Totally. So, so you probably do have to. Yeah. Look, and you raise a very good point. Like uh, people had been in a very tight spot and I still know a lot of people who are in tight spot right now just because the cost of uh, you know borrowing has gone up, the interest rate repayments. It really is a matter of the expectations, if I can say this. Interest rates has been post GFC, as in post 2008, I mean, even before that, interest rate has been, you know, at one stage was 18%, 19%. But then, so let's say that that was the old time. So even post GFC, as in post 2008, the average has been about 4.4, interest rates. It's just that sometimes people have short-term memory. You know, when interest rate came down to 0.1, people, you know, um, got in the excitement that interest rate is so low because that was a need of the time for the government to reduce the interest rates to keep the economy going in and and you know during the covid years to keep the economy going on they, what they made is the cost of borrowing so low make it so cheap so that keep, people can keep going and that's what really happened people went go they went too hard too hard <laughs> yeah. without realizing that nothing is you know set in stone things that goes down will come up and over last year it has almost Come to the point where it has it has gone so high so quickly, relative to what to people's expectations, and that's where they got in trouble. That oh, what's really going on? How far it will go? And thanks to media, they just talk about the the scary stories, you know. Um, but let's talk about the long term investment, like like long term horizon. Mm. Property investing is not supposed to be done over a couple of years or a few months. It's a long term investment, a long term purchase. So those numbers should be considered. Uh, in taking any decision. So to your point, we are actually purely into education strategy first. That was the reason my why to start this journey because I was in a very fortunate position to have those careers and the mindset to, to unearth and understand how this is done. And my sole motto of running this business is to actually emphasize the importance of strategy, emphasize the importance of due diligence, emphasize the importance of personalization. Um, that how we can make a robust portfolio, understand that things will happen, build those safety net around us early on. I just feel bad that someone has already fallen through. It's not really much me as a mentor can do other you than talk it. about, 
You know, what are the implications in the long run? So really educating yourself is in the market in how to property invest is crucial. Don't just do it on your own as a whim. Yep. Either get a mentor or educate yourself. I also kind of think it's 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 good to think that borrowing money is a business. You know, people are making money from you borrowing money. Yep. The banks make money and the government makes money through the RBA. Yes. So there's not much sense in them not making money by lending you money. So if you're only getting, you know, if your mortgage is 1%, you're going to have to be assuming that's going up very, very soon because there's no reason they're going to be giving it to you if they're not going to be making a fortune. So they're going to be wanting to push that up and push that up quickly. No, I think it's not really about that, Daniel. My take is that for any business, like that's a lender, they have a cost of borrowing from their side, which is more of institutional uh, borrowing that they do in international markets. It's all about the margins. If somebody borrow at 2%, they'll put their own margin of about one and a half, two 2%, and they'll lend you money at 4%, as an example. So they will always be worrying, worrying about their margins. Today, they are borrowing at 3%, they'll put their margin of 2%, now they're lending it at 5%. So banks are in the business of making money. But the banks get it from the RBA. Uh, yeah, the exactly. RBA has the money. Yeah. So the RBA makes more money from the banks, and the banks make bigger margins with bigger interest rates. Yeah, so... Rather than so, lower so interest RBA rates, so they do make more. So just from that, like institutional RBA lending, they are setting the rules that it's 0.1 or 2.5, 3.6 now. So all what we are saying is that RBA sets up the institutional borrowing from international market or they print money. However, for the banks, like the big four, as an example, they will go to RBA, they will bid for the money that how much they want to borrow, but the cash rate, standard cash rate as of now is 3.6. So it's what they're borrowing it at is not too far from that number. And then, so 3.6, and then they add their margins. So that's how RBA is calculating the, I guess, the liquidity in the market or the flow or the, the cost of borrowing effectively. Because they know if they make it 3.6 to another rise to, you know, a couple of rises, 4.1, they know that banks will actually raise it. And that will start impacting the average Aussie uh, with their uh, borrowing cost. All I know is if I was lending money, I'd be saying, yeah, yeah, I'll lend it at 1% right now. I'd get as many people to borrow money as me as possible. And then once they've already borrowed the money off me, then I can start lifting the interest rates and say, okay, now I'm going to make more money. I, uh, uh, that's, that, that's, that may not be how they do it. But, but <laughs> if I could think of that, I'm sure they think of that too. Yeah, and, see, and, see, the whole thing, if I can say this, like it's their business of lending money. Exactly. Right. And um, they want to make money by lending more, to your point. We also have to be mindful that the borrower or the savvy investor borrow money to make money as well. So it's actually a handshake. It's not really, they're not really forcing anyone to do anything. Yes, but 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 you do, but I'm, I'm agreeing you in the sense that it's 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 like a car or a gun. Yeah. You know, it it could be a great tool, but it also can be very dangerous if yes. you don't have the right training. You don't know how to do it. Exactly. And right. so so understanding how to leverage that tool and yes. understanding what they do and, and how to leverage that tool for yourself through mentors, uh, through study, and, and and the property market is a fantastic way to build to build a wealth portfolio. We we do need to wrap up now. Um, um, um. Uh, sorry, Laura was doing a little finger twirl yeah. at me before. But is there, is there, uh, do you have a, I guess, a most important lesson when it comes to growing your property portfolio or, or getting into the property market, investing in the property market? Do you have one thing that you would 
that you'd say is the most important thing? Yeah, so a couple of things, if I can say. Take it as a business and do your due diligence. But more important than that is, like we were talking about leverage. Leverage is a double-edged sword because what it is doing is just multiplying your gains or losses. Right? When you borrow money, when you made just 10% on your uh, total investment, but if you are leveraged by 10 times, actually that's 100% return on investment for you and vice versa. So the key thing when it comes to property investing is not to just appreciate the power of leverage when it comes to the money or financial leverage, but also appreciating the power of knowledge leverage. Like knowing what to do, how to do, either you build your knowledge base on your own, which might take a lot of while. And that's what I did. I took a lot of chances, risks, you know, studied, made lots of mistakes on the way. But the best way to use both combination of financial leverage as well as the knowledge leverage is to invest in your own education and to get the best mentor out there who will handhold you the whole process. Even the best tennis player has a couple of coaches. Awesome. I completely agree. And to our listeners, if you want to get in contact with Rusty, you can go to cup.club forward slash podcast and you can find his details there. Or if you want to catch up with Cub on social, it's at Club United Business on Instagram. Rusty, thank you so much for coming on. You're an absolute legend and we love having you a member of Cub. No, thank you so much. Thank you so much for putting all the opportunities together for us. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the show.